Section six of the Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume two, by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four: The failure of Fremont, Lincoln's first difficulties with McClellan, the death of Willie Lincoln, Part two. Soon after the extra session of Congress assembled in July, a committee was appointed to look into the contracts the War Department was making. This committee spent the entire fall in investigation, sitting in Boston, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, and other cities. Its report, when made public in December, proved to be full of sensational developments. The Secretary of War, it was clear, had not been able to manage his department without great scandal. If he himself were incorruptible, he was not big enough for his duties, and inefficiency in affairs of state, particularly in time of war, is criminal. The matter was too serious a one for Mr. Lincoln to overlook. The public would not have permitted him to overlook it, even if he had been so disposed. Cameron not only brought the president into trouble by his bad management of the business of his office, but in his December report he attempted, without Mr. Lincoln's knowledge, to advocate a measure in direct opposition to what he knew to be the president's policy in regard to slavery. This measure declared in favor of arming the slaves and employing their services against the rebels under proper military regulation, discipline, and command. This report was mailed before the president saw it, but by his order it was promptly withdrawn from circulation as soon as he knew its contents. Nine months of this sort of experience convinced Lincoln that Cameron was not the man for the place and he took advantage of a remark which the secretary, probably in a moment of depression, had made to him more than once, that he wanted a change of position, and made him minister to Russia. It is plain from Lincoln's letters to Cameron at this time, and his subsequent treatment of him, that, with characteristic fair dealing, he took into consideration all the enormous difficulties which beset the secretary of war. He saw what the public refused to see— that to bring the war department up to the standard of the times and work an army of five hundred thousand with machinery adapted to a peace establishment of twelve thousand is no easy task he had all this in mind evidently when he relieved cameron for he assured him of his personal regard and of his confidence in his ability patriotism and fidelity to public trust a few months later he did still more for cameron in april eighteen sixty two congress passed a bill censuring the secretary for certain of his transactions the president soon after sent the body a message in which he claimed that he himself was equally responsible in the transaction for which cameron was being censured i should be wanting equally in candor and in justice if i should leave the censure expressed in this resolution to rest exclusively or chiefly upon mr cameron the same sentiment is unanimously entertained by the heads of departments who participated in the proceedings which the House of Representatives has censured. It is due to Mr. Cameron to say that, although he fully approved the proceedings, they were not moved or suggested by himself, and that not only the President, but all the other heads of departments, were at least equally responsible with him for whatever error, wrong, or fault was committed in the premises. 
in deciding on a successor to mr cameron the president showed more clearly perhaps than in any other appointment of his whole presidential career how far above personal resentments he was in his public dealings he chose a man who six years before at a time when consideration from a superior meant a great deal to him had subjected him to a slight and this for no other apparent reason than that he was rude in dress and unpolished in manner a man who besides had been his most scornful even vituperative critic since his election this man was edwin m stanton a lawyer of ability integrity and loyalty who had won the confidence of the north by his patriotic services in buchanan's cabinet from december nineteen sixty to the close of his administration march fourth eighteen sixty one lincoln's first encounter with stanton had been in eighteen fifty five in his first case of importance outside of illinois he was a counsel in the case with stanton but the latter ignored him so openly that all those associated with him observed it lincoln next knew of stanton when as president-elect he watched from springfield the deplorable dissolution of the federal authority which buchanan allowed and he must have felt profoundly grateful for the new vigor and determination which were infused into the administration when in december eighteen sixty stanton and holt entered buchanan's cabinet after lincoln was inaugurated he had nothing to do with stanton in fact he did not see him from the fourth of march eighteen sixty one to the day he handed him his commission as secretary of war in january eighteen sixty two stanton however was watching lincoln's administration closely even disdainfully after bull run he wrote to ex-president buchanan the imbecility of this administration culminated in that catastrophe an irretrievable misfortune and national disgrace never to be forgotten are to be added to the ruin of all peaceful pursuits and national bankruptcy as a result of lincoln's running the machine for five months mcclellan who saw much of stanton in the fall of eighteen sixty one says the most disagreeable thing about him was the extreme virulence with which he abused the president the administration and the republican party he carried this to such an extent that i was often shocked by it he never spoke of the president in any other way than as the original gorilla and often said that du chaillu was a fool to wander all the way to africa in search of what he could so easily have found at springfield illinois nothing could have been more bitter than his words and manner always were when speaking of the administration and the republican party he never gave them credit for honesty or patriotism and very seldom for any ability lincoln if he knew of this abuse which is improbable regarded it no more seriously than he did mcclellan's slights he knew stanton was able and loyal that the country believed in him that he would administer the department with honesty and energy furthermore he knew of the intimacy between mcclellan and stanton and as he saw the great necessity of harmonious relations between the head of the war department and the commander of the army he was more in favor of stanton the appointment was generally regarded as a wise selection and in many quarters aroused enthusiasm no man ever entered upon the discharge of the most momentous public duties under more favorable auspices so far as public confidence and support can create such auspices said the new york tribune 
in all the loyal states there has not been one dissent from the general acclamation which hailed mr stanton's appointment as eminently wise and happy the simple truth is that mr stanton was not appointed to and does not accept the war department in support of any program or policy whatever but the unqualified and uncompromising vindication of the authority and integrity of the union whatever views he may entertain respecting slavery will not be allowed to swerve him one hair from the line of paramount and single-hearted devotion to the national cause if slavery or anti-slavery shall at any time be found obstructing or impeding the nation in its efforts to crush out this monstrous rebellion he will walk straight on in the path of duty though that path should lead him over or through the impediment and ensure its annihilation stanton took hold of his task with the aggressive earnestness and energy of his nature he made open war on contractors he did not hesitate to let mcclellan know that he expected an advance as he wrote charles a dana on january twenty second this army has got to fight or run away and while men are striving nobly in the west the champagne and oysters on the potomac must be stopped it is evident from this same letter to mr dana that he had undertaken to discipline even the president for his habit of joking i feel a deep earnest feeling growing up around me we have no jokes or trivialities but all with whom i act show that they are in dead earnest the excitement over the trent affair the investigation of the war department the dismissal of cameron and the appointment of stanton diverted public criticism from mcclellan but never for long at a time the inactivity of the army of the potomac had become the subject of jibes and sneers lincoln stood by the general he had promised him all the sense and information he had and he gave it when congress opened on december third he took the opportunity to remind the country that the general was its own choice as well as his and that support was due him since your last adjournment lieutenant general scott has retired from the head of the army with the retirement of general scott came the executive duty of appointing in his stead a general-in-chief of the army it is a fortunate circumstance that neither in council nor country was there so far as i know any difference of opinion as to the proper person to be selected the retiring chief repeatedly expressed his judgment in favor of general mcclellan for the position and in this the nation seemed to give a unanimous concurrence the designation of general mcclellan is therefore in considerable degree the selection of the country as well as of the executive and hence there is better reason to hope that there will be given him the confidence and cordial support thus by fair implication promised and without which he cannot with so full efficiency serve the country at this time lincoln had every reason to believe that mcclellan would soon move the general certainly was assuring the few persons whom he condescended to take into his confidence to that effect the honorable galusha a grau of pennsylvania speaker of the house says that very soon after congress came together the members began to comment on the number of board barracks that were going up around washington it seemed to them said mr grau that there were a great many more than were necessary for hospital and reserve purposes the roads at that time in virginia were excellent 
everybody was eager for an advance congressmen observed the barracks with dismay it looked as if mcclellan was going into winter quarters finally several of them came to me and stated their anxiety asking what it meant well gentlemen i said i don't know what it means but i will ask the general so i went to mcclellan who received me kindly and told him how all the members were feeling and asked him if the army was really going into winter quarters no no mcclellan said i have no intention of putting the army into winter quarters i mean the campaign shall be short sharp and decisive he began explaining his plan to me but i interrupted him saying i did not desire to know his plan i preferred not to know it in fact if i could assure members of congress that the army was going to move it was all that was necessary i returned with his assurance that there would soon be an advance weeks went on however without the promised advance nor did the army of the potomac leave the vicinity of washington until mr lincoln issued the special orders compelling mcclellan to move lincoln continued to defend mcclellan we've got to stand by the general he told his visitors i suppose he added dubiously he knows his business but loyal as he was he too was losing patience his friend mr arnold tells how the president said one day to a friend of general mcclellan doubtless with the expectation that it would be repeated mcclellan's tardiness reminds me of a man in illinois whose attorney was not sufficiently aggressive the client knew a few law phrases and finally after waiting until his patience was exhausted by the non-action of his counsel he sprang to his feet and exclaimed why don't you go at him with a fee-fa-demurrer a capius a surabutter or a ne exit or something and not stand there like a nudum pactum or a non est later he made a remark which was repeated up and down the country if general mcclellan does not want to use the army for some days i should like to borrow it and see if it cannot be made to do something towards the end of december mcclellan fell ill the long-expected advance was out of the question until he recovered distracted at this idea the president for the first time asserted himself as commander-in-chief of the forces of the united states heretofore he had used his military authority principally in raising men and commissioning officers campaigns he had left to the generals it had been to be sure largely because of his urgency that the battle of bull run had been fought after bull run he had prepared a memorandum of military policy suggested by the bull run defeat and may have thought the war department was working according to this when he relieved fremont he had offered his successor a few suggestions but he had been careful to add knowing how hazardous it is to bind down a distant commander in the field to specific lines and operations as so much always depends on a knowledge of localities and passing events it is intended therefore to leave a considerable margin for the exercise of your judgment and discretion early in december weary with waiting for mcclellan he had sent him a list of questions concerning the potomac campaign they were broad hints but in no sense orders and mcclellan hardly gave them a second thought nicolay and hay say that after keeping them ten days the general returned them with the hurried answers in pencil certainly he was in no degree influenced by them 
and this was about all the military authority interference some critics called it that the president had exercised up to the time mcclellan was shut up by fever now however he undertook to learn direct from the officers the condition things were in and if it was not possible to get some work out of the army somewhere along the line particularly was he anxious that east tennessee be relieved the unionists there were being hanged and driven to despair there was danger of them going over to the south all this the generals knew lincoln telegraphed halleck then in command of the western department and buell in charge of the forces in kentucky asking if they were in concert and urging a movement which he supposed to have been decided upon some time before the replies he received disappointed and distressed him there seemed to be no more idea of advancing in the west than in the east the plans he supposed settled his generals now controverted he could get no promise of action no precise information delay is ruining us he wrote to buell on january seventh and it is indispensable for me to have something definite and yet convinced though he was that his plans were practicable he would not make them into orders for my own views he wrote buell on january thirteenth i have not offered and do not offer them as orders and while i am glad to have them respectfully considered i would blame you to follow them contrary to your own clear judgment unless i should put them in the form of orders as to general mcclellan's views you understand your duty in regard to them better than i do with this preliminary i state my general idea of this war to be that we have the greater numbers and the enemy has the greater facility of concentrating forces upon points of collision that we must fail unless we can find some way of making our advantage an overmatch for his and that this can only be done by menacing him with superior forces at different points at the same time so that we can safely attack one or both if he makes no change and if he weakens one to strengthen the other forbear to attack the strengthened one but seize and hold the weakened one gaining so much this hesitancy about exercising his military authority came from lincoln's consciousness that he knew next to nothing of the business of fighting when he saw that those supposed to know something of the science did nothing he resolved to learn the subject himself as thoroughly as he could he gave himself night and day to the study of the military situation say nicolay and hay his secretaries he read a large number of strategical works he pored over the reports from the various departments and districts of the field of war he held long conferences with eminent generals and admirals and astonished them by the extent of his special knowledge and the keen intelligence of his questions by the time mcclellan was about again lincoln had learned enough of the situation to convince him that the army of the potomac could and must advance and on january twenty seventh he for the first time used his power as commander-in-chief of the army and issued his general war order number one ordered that the twenty-second day of february eighteen sixty two be the day for a general movement of all the land and naval forces of the united states against the insurgent forces that especially the army at and about fortress monroe the army of the potomac 
the army of western virginia the army near munfordville kentucky the army and flotilla at cairo and a naval force in the gulf of mexico be ready to move on that day that all other forces both land and naval with their respective commanders obey existing orders for the time and be ready to obey additional orders when duly given that the heads of departments and especially the secretaries of war and of the navy with all their subordinates and the general-in-chief with all other commanders and subordinates of land and naval forces will severally be held to their strict and full responsibilities for prompt execution of this order four days later the president issued his first special war order applying exclusively to the army of the potomac ordered that all the disposable force of the army of the potomac after providing safely for the defense of washington be formed into an expedition for the immediate object of seizing and occupying a point upon the railroad southwestern of what is known as manassas junction all details to be in the discretion of the commander-in-chief and the expedition to move before or on the twenty-second day of february next for a time after these orders were issued there was a general hopefulness in the country the newspapers that had been attacking the president now praised him for taking hold of the army it has infused new spirit into everyone since the president appears to take such an interest in our operations wrote an officer from the west to the tribune the hope of an advance in the east was short-lived mcclellan was not willing to carry out the plan for the campaign which the president approved mr lincoln believed that the army of the potomac should move directly across virginia against richmond while mcclellan contended that the safe and brilliant movement was down the chesapeake up the rappahannock to urbana and across land to the york river there was much controversy between the friends of the two plans it ended in the president giving up to his general of one thing he felt certain mcclellan would not work as well on a plan in which he did not believe as on one to which he was committed and as success was what mr lincoln wanted he finally consented to the chesapeake route it brought bitter criticism upon him especially from the congressional committee on the conduct of the war common sense told men that the direct overland route to richmond was the better the president they said was afraid of his general-in-chief while harassed by this inaction and obstinacy of mcclellan's mr lincoln was plunged into a bitter private sorrow early in february his two younger boys willie and tad as they were familiarly known fell sick in the tenderness of his nature mr lincoln could never see suffering of any kind without a passionate desire to relieve it especially he was moved by the distress of a child indeed his love for children had already become familiar to the whole public by the touching little stories which visitors had brought away from the white house and which crept into the newspapers at the reception saturday afternoon at the president's house wrote a correspondent of the independent many persons noticed three little girls poorly dressed the children of some mechanic or laboring man who had followed the visitors into the white house to gratify their curiosity they passed around from room to room and were hastening through the reception room with some trepidation when the president called to them little girls are you going to pass me without shaking hands then he bent his tall awkward form down and shook each little girl warmly by the hand 
everybody in the apartment was spellbound by the incident so simple in itself many men and women now living who were children in washington at this time recall the president's gentleness to them mr frank p blair of chicago says during the war my grandfather francis p blair senior lived at silver springs north of washington seven miles from the white house it was a magnificent place of four or five hundred acres with an extensive lawn in the rear of the house the grandchildren gathered there frequently there were eight or ten of us our ages ranging from eight to twelve years although i was but seven or eight years of age mr lincoln's visits were of such importance to us boys as to leave a clear impression on my memory he drove out to the place quite frequently we boys for hours at a time played town ball on the vast lawn and mr lincoln would join ardently in the sport i remember vividly how he ran with the children how long were his strides and how far his coat-tails stuck out behind and how we tried to hit him with the ball as he ran the bases he entered into the spirit of the play as completely as any of us and we invariably hailed his coming with delight the protecting sympathy and tenderness the president extended to all children became a passionate affection for his own willie and tad had always been privileged beings at the white house and their pranks and companionship undoubtedly did much to relieve the tremendous strain the president was suffering many visitors who saw him with the lads at this period have recorded their impressions how keenly he enjoyed the children how indulgent and affectionate he was with them again and again he related their sayings sometimes even to grave delegations thus moncure conway tells of going to see the president with a commission which wanted to talk over the situation the president met them laughing like a boy the white house was in a state of feverish excitement he said one of his boys had come in that morning to tell him that the cat had kittens and now the other had just announced that the dog had puppies when both the children fell ill when he saw them suffering and when it became evident as it finally did that willie the elder of the two would die the president's anguish was intense he would slip away from visitors and cabinet at every opportunity to go to the sick-room and during the last four or five days of willie's life when the child was suffering terribly and lay in an unbroken delirium mr lincoln shared with the nurse the nightly vigils at the bedside when willie finally died on february twentieth the president was so prostrated that it was feared by many of his friends that he would succumb entirely to his grief many public duties he undoubtedly did neglect indeed a month after willie's death we find him apologizing for delay to answer a letter because of a domestic affliction if one consults the records of the day however it is evident that mr lincoln did try to attend to public duties even in the worst of this trial only two days after the funeral on february twenty third he held a cabinet meeting and the day following that a correspondent wrote to the new york evening post mr lincoln seems to have entirely recovered his health and is again at his ordinary duties spending not infrequently eighteen out of the twenty-four hours upon the affairs of the nation he is frequently called up three and four times in a night to receive important messages from the west since his late bereavement he looks sad and careworn but is in very good health again 
there is ample evidence that in this crushing grief the president sought earnestly to find what consolation the christian religion might have for him it was the first experience of his life so far as we know which drove him to look outside of his own mind and heart for help to endure a personal grief it was the first time in his life when he had not been sufficient for his own experience religion up to this time had been an intellectual interest the christian dogma had been taught to him as a child and all his life he had been accustomed to hearing every phase of human conduct and experience tested by the precepts of the bible as they were interpreted by the more or less illiterate church of the west for a short period of his life when he was about twenty-five years of age it is certain that he revolted against the christian system and even went so far as to prepare a pamphlet against it the manuscript of this work was destroyed by his friend samuel hill this period of doubt passed and though there is nothing to show that mr lincoln returned to the literal interpretation of christianity which he had been taught and though he never joined any religious sect it is certain that he regarded the bible and the church with deep reverence he was a regular attendant upon religious services and one only has to read his letters and speeches to realize that his literary style and his moral point of view were both formed by the bible it was after his election to the presidency that we begin to find evidences that mr lincoln held to the belief that the affairs of men are in the keeping of a divine being who hears and answers prayer and who is to be trusted to bring about the final triumph of the right he publicly acknowledged such a faith when he bade his springfield friends good-bye in february eighteen sixty one in his first inaugural address he told the country that the difficulty between north and south could be adjusted in the best way by intelligence patriotism christianity and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land when he was obliged to summon a congress to provide means for a civil war he started them forth on their duties with the words let us renew our trust in god and go forward without fear and with manly hearts in august eighteen sixty one he issued a proclamation for a national fast day which is most impressive for its reverential spirit whereas it is fit and becoming in all people at all times to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of god to bow in humble submission to his chastisements to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in the full conviction that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and to pray with all fervency and contrition for the pardon of their past offences and for a blessing upon their present and prospective action and whereas when our own beloved country once by the blessing of god united prosperous and happy is now afflicted with faction and civil war it is peculiarly fit for us to recognize the hand of god in this terrible visitation and in sorrowful remembrance of our own faults and crimes as a nation and as individuals to humble ourselves before him and to pray for his mercy to pray that we may be spared further punishment though most justly deserved that our arms may be blessed and made effectual for the re-establishment of law order and peace throughout the wide extent of our country and that the inestimable boon of civil and religious liberty earned under his guidance and blessing by the labors and sufferings of our fathers may be restored in all its original excellence 
but it is not until after the death of his son that we begin to find evidence that mr lincoln was making a personal test of christianity broken by his anxiety for the country wounded nigh to death by his loss he felt that he must have a support outside of himself that from some source he must draw new courage could he find the help he needed in the christian faith from this time on he was seen often with the bible in his hand and he is known to have prayed frequently his personal relation to god occupied his mind much he was deeply concerned to know as he told a visiting delegation once not whether the lord was on his side but whether he was on the lord's side henceforth one of the most real influences in abraham lincoln's life and conduct is his dependence upon a personal god End of section 6